So good to see you here this morning. It was a few weeks ago I was at Dollar General and I was at the cashier window paying and a little girl walks in. She was about six or seven years old. She has this bewildered look on her face. She's like she's looking for someone or something. And the cashier asked her, can I, can I help you, young lady? And she, get, she said, yeah, I'm looking for my mom. Where is she? And the cashier says, well, I, I don't know your mom. What does she look like? And the little girl says, she looks like this. <laughs> and I thought, I can't help but think that maybe she's seen her mom take a few selfies, you know. It's kind of like the uh, mother who was inviting a bunch of guests over for dinner. She made all the preparations, and it came time for the guests to sit down at the table. And the mother asked her little boy, who was about five years old, if he would lead the prayer. He said, no, I don't want to. She goes, no, you, you can do it. Just lead the prayer for us. He said, well, what would I say? And she goes, just say what I always say. And so he said, dear Lord, why did I invite all these people over for dinner? <laughs> We've been talking about family over the last few weeks. We've been talking about how an imperfect family can build a foundation on a perfect God and thus serve Him in their little kingdom. A few weeks ago, we talked about the supermen, talking about fathers and their role and responsibility in the home. Last week, we talked about the Wonder Women and mothers and how they play an integral part in the raising of children. And this morning, we're talking about the sidekicks, the children. You know, a lot of superheroes had a sidekick. Batman had Robin. But also, we see that many times the superhero had a kid version of him or herself. You know, Superman and Superboy, Wonder Woman and Wonder Girl, Aquaman, Aqualad, Batman, Batboy, you get the idea, right? As supermen and wonder women, we are to do our part, to do everything possible to raise our children to be superheroes who, who fight against evil, who, who can be strong in the Lord. But unfortunately, sometimes our little superheroes grow up and, and they go over to the dark side. Sometimes they don't use that strength to fight for God, but rather they fight against their upbringing. And it's truly tragic, but our role and responsibility as supermen and wonder women doesn't change. Regardless of what the negative outcome could be, we still fight for our home and we still fight to raise our children in the way of the Lord. Someone once said, before I got married, I had six theories about bringing up children. Now I have six children and no theories. It's like the young student of children behavior who uh, would frequently do lectureships. He entitled his lecture, Ten Commandments for Parenting. He then had a child and he changed the title of his lectures to Ten Guidelines for Parenting. He had another child, and he changed his lectures to 10 suggestions for parenting. He had yet another child, and he stopped lecturing. I had this idea that before I had children, it would be easy. Just raise them the way God tells you to, and it's all going to work out. Unfortunately, that's not always the case. Unfortunately, 
following God's word does not guarantee that our kids will always be faithful. Superhero parents don't always have superhero kids. Psalm 127 verses 3 through 5 reads, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. I realize that we have all received a gift that maybe didn't fit or maybe that we didn't want, but certainly that's not the case when it comes to our children. Children are not our achievement, they're a gift from the Lord. And what do you do with a precious gift? Well, hopefully you treasure it and you cherish it. Now, Scripture here also says that children are like arrows. And what do you do with an arrow? Well, you shoot them. So what do we do with our children if they're arrows? We shoot them, right? Actually, we aim them towards the target and shoot them towards that target. And what's the target that we're aiming for? What's heaven, right? But what happens when you miss the target? What happens when you aim at the bullseye and you miss it completely? Well, I mean, the natural instinct is to blame the parents. You blame the shooter, right? However, there are some parents who pulled the bow back exactly the way they were supposed to. They aimed at the proper target. They launched the arrow in the proper direction. And unfortunately, it didn't stick. It may have hit the bullseye, but it didn't stay. Now, some have missed the target completely. Some would be the first to admit they should have done better. But so often, we blame the archer. So many times, we blame the shooter. And I don't think that's always warranted. There are plenty of parents who are bearing the heavy load of guilt. Look with me at Proverbs 22 and verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he grows older, he will not abandon it. So if I raise my child in a godly home, then he or she will never fall away. And if he or she does fall away, they'll always come back if they were raised right. That's what we assume this passage is teaching. We assume that it implies that if a child strays, even after being raised in a godly home, that they're going to come back. And if they don't come back, then the parents must have done something tragically wrong in the raising of that child. There are blog posts that teach this. There are books that teach this. There are preachers who preach this. Sound too good to be true? That's because it is. Sadly, not all godly children grow up to be godly adults. And there are parents, some even sitting in the auditorium this morning, who are currently dealing with the pain of having a wayward son or daughter. Although they raised their child in a home that glorified God, their adult children have decided not to glorify God in their own home. And all too often, it's the parents that receive the blame. The finger gets pointed at the archers, and I'm here to tell you that's a judgment we need to stop making. If we're only going to judge the quality of parents based on their child, well, then we have severely miss the mark. If our assessment of parenting is based solely on how the child turns out, then we would have to conclude that God was an unfit parent. 
Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 2 reads, Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. You know, God often referred to the children of Israel as his children. Here he refers to them as sons, sons that revolted, sons that turned their back on God and their upbringing. So are we to assume that God is an unfit dad? Are we to assume that God's a bad dad? Obviously not, right? We don't dare accuse God of being an unfit parent because his kids rebelled. There's never been a greater parent, a greater father than the heavenly father. Here's the deal. Even in the most ideal environment, rebellion occurs. Adam and Eve had perfection. They lived in paradise. There was perfect self-esteem. There was, there was perfect relationship, perfect surroundings, and yet they rebelled. Was their failure God's failure? Of course not. Early in our child's life, we exert a lot of influence. We are perhaps their only influence early on, but as they grow into adulthood, we don't have that same power. The devil certainly has influence, but even he didn't force Eve to take of that forbidden fruit. God has influence, but he didn't force a decision with Adam and Eve. He's granted us free will. Teachers, coaches... Many people in our lives have influence, but we have a choice. Here's the deal. If you go back to Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6, it says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he grows older, he will not abandon it. This passage does not mean what we often make it to mean, nor was it ever intended to mean what we make it out to mean. Many well-intentioned folks interpret this scripture to say that even if a child does stray from his godly upbringing, he will eventually return. But where does it say that? Since when did depart become return? It doesn't say that, does it? What this verse actually states is that the child will never depart in the first place. The term train here conveys the idea of dedication, whether of a person or a thing, to the service of God. In the context of Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 6, It has to do with the parent's mental resolution to train or guide their children toward eventual service on behalf of their creator. But take special note of the fact that the text reads, train up a child in the way he should go. Now that's significant. Scholars are somewhat conflicted about the true meaning here. One commentator, Albert Barnes, says that in the way he should go indicates according to the tenor of his way, i.e. the path especially belonging to, especially fitted for, the individual's character. So if that's the case, then Proverbs 22 and verse 6 seems to be saying that when godly parents resolve to raise their children in service to God, and when the training is done in harmony with that child's unique personality, that it will generally prove to be the case that that child will remain faithful generally, not always. You see, Proverbs are principles. We talk about good Bible study, and we've talked about that a lot over the last few years. If we're going to engage in proper Bible study, we have to understand the literature, we have to understand the context, you know, we've talked about all that. Proverbs were never meant to be ironclad rules. They're not absolute truths. They're profound teachings. They're great words to live by, But they're principles, not promises. I can give you an example. Proverbs 16 and verse 7 reads, When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. 
So let me get this straight. As long as I'm kind to other people, as long as I follow the way of the Lord, I'm not going to have any enemies. Is that true? Obviously not. There are some people, no matter how kind you are to them, no matter how godly you may act towards them, they're not going to come over to your side. They're still going to be your enemy, unfortunately. Did Jesus always follow the ways of the Lord? Absolutely, 100% of the time, right? Was he always at peace with his enemies? I think you can answer that with the cross, right? Proverbs are principles. They're not promises. It's always good and right to live a righteous life characterized by high morals and standards and values. It's always good and right to live in such a way where you're kind and compassionate to your fellow man. It's just not an absolute guarantee that by doing that, everybody's going to be kind to you in return. Just like raising your children in a godly home, unfortunately, does not guarantee that you will have godly children for uh, their godly adults. Is it still the best way to raise your children? Absolutely. Is it still our calling as parents? Absolutely. A father of five stopped at Walmart and bought his kids a toy. He came home and he gathered all his children together and he said, okay, who deserves this toy? Of course, they all raised their hand. And so he gave a qualifier. He said, okay, which one of you kids always obeys your mother and you always do exactly what she tells you to do? And they all kind of looked around, and one of them said, Daddy, you get the toy. You're the only one that does that. (laughs) Mark Twain once said, when I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished by how much he had learned in seven years. You know, by and large, young people and even adults are not real keen on authority, right? Young people, adults, we're not real keen on authority. And as a rule, kids don't like to be told what to do, especially by their parents. And so they dream of a day when they can be out on their own, where they can make their own decisions, do their own thing, live life on their own terms. But God had a plan for the family. He knew that obedience to the Heavenly Father begins with obedience to one's parents. The earthly home prepares us for kingdom living. Let me say that again. God's divine design was that the earthly home would be a snapshot of kingdom living. It would be a microcosm of what it would take to live successfully in the kingdom. Notice Ephesians chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may turn out well for you and that you may live long on the earth. The first thing I want you to notice here is that Paul is addressing the children. And you say, well, duh. But remember, when a letter like this would be delivered to the church, say in Ephesus, for instance, the congregation would be gathered together and the letter would be read aloud for the whole congregation to hear. And in the crowd, as this letter is being read, there are parents, and there are children sitting right next to them. And this letter, at least in this portion, is addressed to the children. And what's the message that Paul is trying to convey to the children and to the parents? Obey, honor, and you'll prosper. That threefold admonition from Paul, that threefold admonition is showing 
that the children have a responsibility as well. You know, we lay everything on the parents, don't we? And maybe rightfully so. I mean, obviously, the buck stops with us. Moms and dads, we are the superheroes that are expected to act godly in laying that foundation and raising our kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But we want to lay it all on the parents when Paul says, no, you, you kids have a responsibility as well. It's a two-way street here. Obey, honor, prosper. It's a two-way street, which is why Paul takes time to speak directly to the kids. And the first thing he says is obey. But he doesn't just say obey. He says obey in the Lord. That's an important point. Being a kid is tough especially in your teenage years, because there's always someone telling you what to do. There's always someone that you have to answer to. Someone is always making decisions for you, it seems. But there's one decision your parents can't make for you. There's one decision that is solely left up to you. And it's a lifetime, lifelong decision, one that you'll probably make more than once in your life. Children have one choice that even their parents cannot completely control. And that is whether they will obey the Lord. Now, the word obey here in the Greek means to listen, attend, submit. The idea is placing yourself under the authority of your parents. Do this, but do it in the Lord, Paul says. In other words, when you recognize and submit yourself to the authority of your parents, you are recognizing and submitting yourself to the authority of God. Again, kingdom living, kingdom living starts with earthly living in a home, in a family. That's the precursor. So God designed this structure. He created the family. To rebel against this structure and authority is to rebel against who? It's to rebel against God. Your parents are not the boss of your home. God is. And godly parents understand that, which is why they submit to God first. And so we as children submit to our parents because by doing so, we're submitting to God. That's how this whole structure is supposed to work. We don't submit to our parents because they're big or because they're strong or because they can take away our TV. We submit to them because we're submitting to someone even greater, which is God. Paul states it another way in Colossians chapter 3, verse 20. He says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this is pleasing to the Lord. In other words, obeying God is just the right thing to do. Obeying your parents is the right thing to do. It's just that simple. And because it's the right thing to do, it pleases God. It always pleases God to do the right thing. And then notice Paul states, obey your parents in everything, in everything. So you don't get to approach this buffet style where you pick what you like, discard the rest. This is not about selective obedience in everything. Now, there is a caveat, right? What would the caveat be? As you get older, you may realize that your parents are not acting in the way that pleases God, and they may be enforcing things upon you that are not godly. Remember King Hezekiah? You know, Hezekiah, when he came of age, rejected the upbringing of his father Ahaz. Remember when Saul wanted his son Jonathan to help him kill David? Jonathan refused because it wasn't the right thing to do, and he was going to do the right thing by God. Honor is the second piece of Paul's command. And the Greek term here is tameo, and it refers to valuing. And Paul's letter to the Ephesians is not the first time that we see this command. 
You can go all the way back to Exodus chapter 20 and the Ten Commandments, and you read, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Notice this. Before do not commit adultery, before do not steal, before do not murder, you have honor your father and your mother. Why? Why does that come first? Because again, God understood what we all need to understand is when you get it right in the home, you get it right in the kingdom. So when you honor your father and your mother, when you honor that upbringing, when you honor the divine design that God set up, well, stealing is not going to be as much of an issue. Taking the Lord's name in vain is not going to be as much of a problem. Keeping the Lord's day is not going to be much of an issue. Theft, adultery, covetousness, all those things become much less of an issue when you honor your father and mother. Make sense? Now, it should be noted that there is a distinction to be made between obedience and honor. It's not a big distinction, but there is a distinction. For instance, Kent, are you awake? Yeah, he is now. So, Kent, let's say that your mom tells you that you need to clean your room. And you mumble and you complain and you grumble. And two days later, you clean your room. Okay? That's usually what happens, right? You could well say that two days later, you did what your mom told you, right? I cleaned my room. Now, the difference between obeying and honoring is you clean your room with a smile on your face. Does that make sense? So it's one thing to do the task that your parents asked you to do or commanded you to do. My dad used to always say, you're going to do what I tell you to do for one of two reasons, either out of fear or respect, and I don't care which one it is. So you may command something, and your child may mumble and complain about it and eventually get around to it. That wouldn't happen in my home, but maybe in yours. Obedience is one thing, but honor is something else. Honor is doing it, but doing it with a smile on your face. This honor that Paul talks about doesn't have a time stamp. There's no expiration date. You notice that? Parents who raise their children in the Lord should be honored for a lifetime, not just while the child is at home under their roof. In fact, godly training should be honored even after the child leaves home, even after the parents are deceased. What better way to honor your godly upbringing than by carrying on that legacy of faith long after your parents are gone. There's no time stamp. There's no expiration date. And notice that Paul says that this is the first commandment with a promise. What does that mean? Why throw that in? Well, the first four commandments didn't have any promises attached to them, but when God gave the command to honor your father and mother, he didn't attach a threat or a warning. He attached a promise. He didn't say or else because honoring your father and mother only means something when it's chosen, right? It truly means something when it's chosen. Love must be chosen. Honor must be chosen. Honor comes from a place of love and devotion. So instead of a warning or a threat, God chose to motivate through a promise. Honor your father and mother and live long and prosper. Is that the Spock symbol? Can't do it. Live long and prosper. How does this honoring and obeying my parents make me live longer? Well, if you look at Romans chapter 1, Paul writes, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a depraved mind to do those things that are not proper, people having been filled with all unrighteousness and wickedness, greed and evil. 
full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unfeeling, and unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, not only to do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Did you know that under the law, disobedient children were stoned to death? So, when Paul says, do what your mother and father tell you to do so that you'll live long and prosper, so is he talking about, hey, do what they tell you to do so you don't get stoned? That, that's not really what he's talking about. Although I do find it interesting that among the most egregious sins, the most vile offenses against God here in Romans 1, you find among inventors of evil, all these other things, murders, you find disobedient to, to their parents. Wow. It just goes to show how serious God takes his divine design. But what Paul is doing when he says, that if you obey, obey your parents, you, you will live long and prosper. He's, he's not talking about you'll live to, to be the ripe old age of 100. He's taking that promise from the old law, the promise of Canaan, the promise of a land flowing with milk and honey, and he's applying it to New Testament Christianity. That when we honor and obey our parents, it leads to a prosperous life here, perhaps, but more importantly, in heaven with our true father, right? In other words, things go better for you at home and in life when you honor and obey your parents. When we play by the rules, we win, right? We win the ultimate prize. It's really not that hard. You know, like we said before, though, knowing what to do and doing what we know are two different things. There was a, an elderly man who was really decrepit, he shook uncontrollably at times. His false teeth chattered in his head. He missed his mouth more than he hit it. And he was under the care of his son and daughter-in-law. He had moved in with him, with them because they, they had nowhere else to put him. This didn't make the daughter-in-law happy. She didn't want him there. She thought he was disgusting. She thought he was a drain on their time and their resources. And one night they were sitting at the dinner table as they did each night. And he was spilling food everywhere. He was shaking. He was moaning. He couldn't hardly see. And finally she said, that's it. I've had enough. And she orders her husband to take his dad by the arm and move him to the corner of the room. Sit him in the corner in a high chair that has high sides on it so that they can't see him. He's out of sight. They can hear him, but they can't see him. They give him an earthen bowl to eat out of, and they just leave him so that they don't have to mess with him. Well, this goes on for a few days. And finally, one evening, as the old man is, is eating his supper in that earthen bowl, he drops it because he's shaking uncontrollably, and it falls on the floor and it breaks and shatters everywhere, sends food everywhere, and the wife is completely and totally at her wit's end. She said, that's it. If you're, if you're going to be a pig, you can eat like a pig. And she orders her husband to make him a trough. We'll just feed him out of a trough. Her husband does that, sets a trough in front of him, and he eats out of a trough. One evening, 
The couple had a little boy that was about six or seven years old, and he was working diligently on something. And the dad is curious, and he goes over to him. He says, son, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm making a trough so that I can feed you and mom someday. And with that, the father looked at his wife, and they began sobbing. They immediately made some changes. They brought the old man back to the dinner table. They made sure that he was well fed and well taken care of because they realized that, as all parents do, we're all teachers, aren't we? We are all role models. The question is, what are you teaching? What lessons are you giving your children? And then on the other side of that, Are you as children taking those lessons and applying them to your life? The earthly family is a microcosm of kingdom living. We get that structure right, we get the other right. Not that it's perfect, but it's far better than it ever could be. You may be sitting here this morning really struggling as a parent. You may be having a tough time. You hadn't heard a sermon in in a year. That's okay. Stick with it. We are so glad you're here, so glad that you are taking the time to bring your children and to be a part of this congregation. Some of you have grown children that unfortunately aren't faithful, and you struggle with that. Some of you haven't been faithful yourself, and you're struggling with that. And some of you haven't even begun a daily walk with God, and and maybe you're contemplating that. I don't know where you're at this morning, but I want you to know this. This family is ready to help you. Whatever you need, if you need prayers, you need encouragement, you're ready to study the Bible, you're ready to put on Christ in baptism, whatever your need is, let this family help as we stand and as we sing.